And if we do, and I'm sure we can, we can proclaim the palmist. Oh, I guess while you get your medicine, I'll just stroll through the candy aisles, but won't get any. You can buy two candies. Two? With the palmist who wrote these following words. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can't. Let's sing his praise and celebrate his presence. Nobody thought we should do it, and when I did it, well, what did you do with the time that you bought? You know what we did. You know what we did. What do you do? What do you do when you have no case in the whole United States? When you, you excuse me, you reported it. Zero cases, zero deaths on January 17th. That doesn't seem like a flu. January. I said in January. I don't think it could be on January 30th. Brooksy, if I want to explain it to you, I would. COVID has taken this year, just since the outbreak, has taken more than 100 years. Look, here's the lives. It's just, it's. I mean, you think about it. I saved tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives by putting it. Oh, good for you. And how was it? You know, the rapidly rising uh, um, uh, in with... Uh, with, uh, I don't know. Uh, Can I help you? I have the flu. Super nauseated for a few days, a lot of barfing. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by the go, you know the, you know the thing. Rock and I think it's a right for people that have bad at health care. For people that have bad at health care. For people that have bad at health care. Over there, that pink man, I found a cup of soaps on the arrowhead. It's a total disaster. Plus, I have a ton of work to do, so I need the good stuff. The Mariah needs to sing tonight stuff. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true and international suffered to pressure. True and international suffered to pressure. True and international suffered to pressure. Boo doo boo doo caca boo boo. Sing little like a hobby pee. is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. Screw them. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. You don't look flushed, no signs of fever. That doesn't seem like the flu. It's the flu. I mean, I don't think it could be anything. You know you're a fake. You know that your whole network, the way you cover it, is fake. 
Welcome to Skeologians, another episode. Skeologians is our God, the God of science. I've been excited to try and put together a reasonable episode with this as the topic. And um, all I can say is, is I probably didn't do an adequate amount of show prep, but what's new? But the reason I thought of doing this episode is because recently I was listening to, I think it was Ben Shapiro. I was listening to the recent Ben Shapiro as President-elect Joe Biden names members of his cabinet. And he played a clip that uh, of John Kerry. So I'm going to play that clip for you right now. And this made me think, I think this is the time. Well, either John Kerry is listening to Skeologians or he's not. And um, there, there's two ways this could go, right? It's one or the other. So take a listen to this clip of John Kerry. President Joe Biden will trust in God, and he will also trust in science to guide our work on Earth to protect God's creation. Mr. President-elect and Vice President-elect Harris, I look forward to getting to work. Thank you. So I guess I think I have t- I had two thoughts initially. Well, the first thought was the pessimist in me that was like, here he goes, another person, you know, is... Uh, differentiating God and science, putting them on opposite ends, right? We're going to trust God and we're going to trust science. They're not, they're, they're mutually exclusive. And then I thought maybe John Kerry uh, does not think that. Maybe he's been, uh, he understands uh, that the necessary precondition of intelligibility is the Bible and science can only operate given the Christian worldview. And uh, I thought that was maybe wishful thinking, but if you're a listener to this show, and that last statement uh, either resonates with you or confuses you or you're understanding how I can even say that, then I would encourage you to take a listen. Today we're going to go through an article by Dr. Jason Lyle and uh, talk about some points from that. And if we have time, I'll, I'll read the article that I found by Greg Bonson on a similar topic. Uh, I'm going to give you some reflections on my thoughts on how do we apply this in the world today, specifically if we, uh, those of us in education, or I think it applies if you're a parent of a child too, what what you should be thinking um, considering all of this. And then finally, the end of the show, I'm just going to play a 45-minute clip so you can continue listening if you'd like. Uh, it is the clip of Jason Lau giving his ultimate proof of creation um, lecture. It's got some really incredible um, points. He gives he gives evidence, right? Because all evidence is God's evidence. But more importantly, he explains that it isn't about the evidence. It's about the ultimate authority, the ultimate presupposition, um, where we're starting. Uh, and and I think too often Christians hyper focus on evidence. Secularists hyper focus on evidence. They clash at each other. And they don't really realize that the problem is that we're using different measuring sticks. And so we have to, we have to decide whose measuring stick is, up, is consistent with itself and with reality and with, every, and with everything. So that's, that's the tool. That's the theme of the show. And let's dive right in. Brooksy, if I want to explain it to you, I would. Okay, well, probably going to be all over the place here. As you know, I've been reading through Understanding Genesis, which is a book on hermeneutics, but the second half is a lot about talking uh, about a defense for for Genesis, really, creation, young earth stuff. And, and, and it actually is a defense where Jason Lyle talks talks across or debates with Dr. James or something, Ross, uh, a, a professing Christian who believes— in a genesis that 
uh, an evolution within Genesis. So, the, so Genesis is is metaphorical. Uh, there's still billions of years trying to kind of mesh the two. Uh, that's kind of the second half. But, but the majority of this book is about interpretation and rules of interpretation and hermeneutics. And I mean, I'm going to start because we hear this all the time in society. The science says. And so in reading this quick paragraph, I, I think this is important to make note that science is not a person and it's a concept, right? Um, so <laughs> we, that's the fallacy of reification. And that's a very common example where people say science says, but because science is a concept, it cannot say anything. Scientists do say, say things since they are people, they can express their opinions, but science as a concept can't say anything at all. And so, and Lyle brings up this point is why don't people just argue, quote, scientists say, uh, uh, because that would be true. But one reason is automatically people would be, it'd be obvious that, well, not all scientists do say that. There's those who disagree. Uh, and that makes their case much weaker. So when people in, in all society are saying, well, the science says they sound so objective and ultimately, you know, infallible. And it's, 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 a, it's a fallacy. And so you can't, you can't simply say the science says. You can say scientists say, right? But science is a concept. And it's important to realize it, unlike the Bible, which is stating a proposition that then we can interpret in, when we are using the methods of science, we are creating a proposition. So that's a big difference. And, and um, sometimes Christians will say that, that when we, we interpret the Bible and we interpret nature as if they're on equal footing. But it's really important that when scientists are, quote, interpreting nature, they're creating not interpreting propositional statements they believe to be true. And so it's important because that in, they could that their proposition they're creating could be false. And and it often is. We we have scientists have made propositions they've they've realized that that are wrong. So science in and of itself as a methodology is not something that speaks because we as fallible humans are utilizing its processes to come to conclusions and to create propositions. So it's not as if these two things exist on separate planes. There's science and then there's the Bible. One is objective. One is a faith-based claim. That's, that's insanity, and that's kind of the whole point of this show is to show you that science, even as its objective method that we trust and that we utilize, secularists and Christians alike, the rules by which we can even con- perform those things can only be accounted for given a biblical worldview and given biblical principles. And so what do I mean by that? Well, uh, we have a—I'll read a quick short article that Jason Lyle wrote, actually, and it's titled Evolution, the Anti-Science. This was written 12 years ago. Um, Did I get cover everything I wanted to over here? Yeah. No, I guess I was going to say one more point that I wanted to bring up. This is a quote from, from this book. It says, When we interpret the Bible, we are fallibly attempting to understand the meaning of an inerrant text. There's only one step, and thus only one possibility for error, right? The Bible is inerrant. We are fallible. We can make mistakes, but we're trying to in- understand the meaning of an inerrant text with an author who had one meaning, assuming the properties of language and communication, Okay. Only one step. But when scientists, quote, interpret nature, they create a a fallible hypothesis about their world. So there is two steps. Okay, Their hypothesis is based on the understanding of the universe, 
which is extremely limited, right, considering how big the universe is, so therefore highly subject to error. And moreover, the world is cursed and full of sin and it can be misleading to even the most knowledgeable of individuals. And additionally, we must then linguistically interpret the meaning of what the scientists say. This is also subject to error in the same way that our understanding of the biblical text may be subject to error, except in the case of science, the text is not at all inerrant. So God has not just written, God has not written two books, the scriptures and nature. It's not how this works. Okay. Um, All right. So into the article, then I got some points I'll bring up. Here we go. So the abstract says some evolutionists have argued that science isn't possible without evolution, but is evolution even science? Some evolutionists have argued that science isn't possible without evolution. They teach that science and technology actually require the principles of molecules to man evolution in order to work. They claim that those who hold to a biblical creation worldview are in danger of not being able to understand science. Critical thinkers will realize that these kinds of arguments are quite ironic because evolution is actually contrary to the principles of science. That is, if evolution were true, the concept of science would not make sense. Science actually requires a biblical creation framework in order to be possible. Here's why. The preconditions of science. Science presupposes that the universe is logical and orderly and that it obeys mathematical laws that are consistent over time and space. Even though conditions in different regions of space and eras of time are quite diverse, there is nonetheless an underlying uniformity. Because there is such regularity in the universe, there are many instances where scientists are able to make successful predictions about the future. For example, astronomers can successfully compute the positions of the planets, moons, and asteroids far into the future. Without uniformity in nature, such predictions would be impossible, and science could not exist. The problem for evolutionism is that such regularity only makes sense in a biblical creation worldview. Science requires a biblical worldview. The biblical creationist expects there to be order in the universe because God made all things. John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And he has imposed order on the universe. Since the Bible teaches that God upholds all things by his power, Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So I'll read that sentence again. Since the Bible teaches that God upholds all things by his power, the creationist expects that the universe would function in a logical, orderly, law-like fashion. Furthermore, God is consistent and omnipresent. And he gives a few uh, footnote references for that as well from the Bible. Thus, the creationist expects that all regions of the universe will obey the same laws, even in regions where the physical conditions are quite different. The entire field of astronomy requires this important biblical principle. Moreover, God is beyond time. Second Peter 3.8 But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And God has chosen to uphold the universe in a consistent fashion throughout time for our benefit. So even though conditions in the past may be quite different than those in the present and future, the way God upholds the universe, what we would call the laws of nature, will not arbitrarily change. God has told us that there are certain things we can count on to be true in the future, the seasons, the diurnal cycle, and so on, which is from Genesis 8.22, which says, Well, the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. 
Therefore, under a given set of conditions, the consistent Christian has the right to expect a given outcome because he or she relies upon the Lord to uphold the universe in a consistent way. These Christian principles are absolutely essential to science. When we perform a controlled experiment using the same preset starting conditions, we expect to get the same result every time. The future reflects the past in this sense. Scientists are able to make predictions only because there is uniformity as a result of God's sovereign and consistent power. Scientific experimentation would be pointless without uniformity. We would get a different result every time we perform an identical experiment, destroying the very possibility of scientific knowledge. Can an evolutionist do science? Since science requires the biblical principle of uniformity, as well as, another of, uh, as well as a number of other biblical creation principles, it is rather amazing that one could be a scientist and also an evolutionist, and yet there are scientists that profess to believe in evolution. How is this possible? The answer is that evolutionists are able to do science only because they are inconsistent. They accept biblical principles, such as uniformity, while simultaneously denying the Bible from which those principles are derived. Such inconsistency is common in secular thinking. Secular scientists claim that the universe is not designed, but they do science as if the universe is designed and upheld by God in a uniform way. Evolutionists can do science only if they rely on biblical creation assumptions, such as uniformity, that are contrary to their professed belief in evolution. How would an evolutionist respond? The consistent Christian can use past experience as a guide for what is likely to happen in the future because God has promised us that, in certain ways, the future will reflect the past. But how can those who reject Genesis explain why there should be uniformity of nature? How might an evolutionist respond if asked, why will the future reflect the past? One of the most common responses is, well, it always has, so I expect it always will. But this is circular reasoning. I'll grant that in the past there has been uniformity. But how do I know that in the future there will be uniformity, unless I already assume that the future reflects the past, i.e. uniformity? Whenever we use past experience as a basis for what is likely to happen in the future, we are assuming uniformity. So when an evolutionist says that he believes there will be uniformity in the future, since there has been uniformity in the past, he's trying to justify uniformity by simply assuming uniformity, a circular argument. An evolutionist might argue that the nature of matter is such that it behaves in a regular fashion. In other words, uniformity is just a property of the universe. This answer also fails. First, it doesn't really answer the question. Perhaps uniformity is one aspect of the universe, but the question is why? What would be the basis for such a property in an evolutionary worldview? Second, we might ask how an evolutionist could possibly know that uniformity is a property of the universe. At best, he or she can only say that the universe, in the past, seems to have had some uniformity. But how do we know that will continue into the future unless we already knew about uniformity some other way? Many things in this universe change. How do we know that the laws of nature will not? Some evolutionists might try a more pragmatic response. Well, I can't really explain why. But uniformity seems to work, so we use it. This answer also fails for two reasons. First, we can only argue that uniformity seems to have worked in the past. There's no guarantee it will continue to work in the future unless you already have a reason to assume uniformity, which only the Christian does. Yet, evolutionists do assume that uniformity will be true in the future. Second, the answer admits that uniformity is without justification in the evolutionary worldview, which is exactly the point. No one is denying that there is uniformity in nature. The point is that only a biblical creation worldview can make sense of it. 
evolutionists can only do science if they are inconsistent. That is, if they assume biblical creationist concepts while denying biblical creation. Theistic evolution won't save the day. Some evolutionists might argue that they can account for uniformity just as the Christian does, by appealing to a God who upholds the universe in a law-like fashion. But rather than believing in Genesis creation, they believe that this God created over a million years of evolution. However, theistic evolution will not resolve the problem. A theistic evolutionist does not believe that Genesis is literally true. But if Genesis is not literally true, then there is no reason to believe that Genesis 8.22 is literally true. This verse is where God promises that we can count on a certain degree of uniformity in the future. Without biblical creation, the rational basis for uniformity is lost. It's not just any God that is required in order to make sense of uniformity. It is the Christian God as revealed in the Bible. Only a God who is beyond time, consistent, faithful, all-powerful, omnipresent, and who has revealed himself to mankind can guarantee that there will be uniformity throughout space and time. Therefore, only biblical creationists can account for the uniformity in nature. Evolution is irrational. In fact, if evolution were true, there wouldn't be any rational reason to believe it. If life is the result of evolution, then it means that an evolutionist brain is simply the outworking of millions of years of random chance processes. The brain would simply be a collection of chemical reactions that have been preserved because they had some sort of survival value in the past. If evolution were true, then all the evolutionist thoughts are merely the necessary result of chemistry acting over time. Therefore, an evolutionist must think and say that evolution is true, not for rational reasons, but as a necessary consequence of blind chemistry. Scholarly analysis presupposes that the human mind is not just chemistry. Rationality presupposes that we have the freedom to consciously consider the various options and choose the best. Evolutionism undermines the preconditions necessary for rational thought, thereby destroying the very possibility of knowledge and science. And the conclusions. Evolution is anti-science and anti-knowledge. If evolution were true, science would not be possible, because there would be no reason to accept the uniformity of nature upon which all science and technology depend. Nor would there be any reason to think that rational analysis would be possible, since the thoughts of our mind would be nothing more than the inevitable result of mindless chemical reactions. Evolutionists are able to do science and gain knowledge only because they are inconsistent, professing to believe in evolution while accepting the principles of biblical creation. <clears throat> okay, so you could see there Jason Lyle, demonstration of his writing and kind of the way he... I like how he has conclusions at the end of stuff. He does this in his books, too. Every chapter has a conclusion, so you feel like you're actually learning stuff because you hit, you hit the same thing more than once. Uh, and at the end, you know, you can just reread the, that page-and-a-half conclusion and get the main points again. I think that's really smart writing, especially when you're writing books like this where it might be long, might have a lot of information. You want to go back and, what was that chapter about again? So you can see that. But also, you know, dissecting. I, unfortunately, there was no proofs here. He is a, a logic guy, so in, in the book I'm reading too, he's got all the rules and laws of logic and all the different fallacies. So when he's dialoguing with people, he's like, "Well, you're saying no, you know, first you're proposing one and <laughs> the antecedent." <coughs> Sorry. And uh, he didn't do that in this article, but he didn't have to. But uh, that's that's part of his writing that, that makes it so fun to read, right? Really engaging literature. <clears throat> so my my main points with this were basically. Um, if you are just joining us live on Shovel Lake Public Radio. The first point is basically if evolution were true, science wouldn't would not make sense. Okay. And that's because we need that the the uniformity in nature is is critical 
and you can't have that if evolution were true. And also at the end here, he kind of brings up the point that the irrational side of it, that if evolution were true, even just rational thinking in our brain <clears throat> would be the outworking of millions of years of random chance processes. So we'd have no rational reason to um, to believe it and consider any of our beliefs. <clears throat> but science requires a biblical creation framework in order to be possible. And then he gives those reasons. <clears throat> the first main reason is the, pre, the necessary precondition of science. We have to have the uniformity in nature, and, and only the Bible can, uh, the biblical scientists can expect that, given John 1.3, Hebrews 1.3, 2 Peter 3.8, Genesis 8.22. But we need that in order to perform science. And so then, given this problem, the evolutionist is, is basically faced with a dilemma, and <clears throat> they have to do science as if the universe is designed, they have to do science as if it is uniform, as if everything that, well, basically all the laws that we that are reality that allow us to do science from the Bible, they have to do science by that manner, but then deny the basis for them. And then he gives those common responses, which I think is interesting, right? He, and I like that about Lyle. He's not going to just leave you hanging. He's done dialogue with secular scientists. He's been in that field before. He knows and, and has experienced the... Um, the defenses and, <clears throat> and and they don't have any grounding. So he pre presents just a few here, right? The first one is, well, it always has been. I expect it will. Like this, the circular reasoning that comes from that position, I think that is the most common one. Um, you know, it always has been. So I expect it always will. That's circular reasoning. Is, is The second one brings up uniformity is simply a property of the universe. Well, that's begging the question, why? On what basis can we expect uniformity to be upheld in the future given an evolutionary worldview. And if you're assuming randomness is the key cause for all beginnings, you can't, right? So that's the second one. <clears throat> and the third one, I can't explain why, but it works, so we'll use it. Well, no one's denying that there is uniformity. That's not the problem, okay? The point is that your worldview can't account for it. Um, and this this brings us to, well, and then finally, is last the paragraph about theistic evolution. You can't just choose a God, right? It, it, you need the scriptures because ultimately, ultimately the Christian's ultimate authority is the scriptures because that's the direct revelation from God. <clears throat> so I can't just make up a God because I don't have God, that made up God has, has not revealed himself infallibly. Uh, and, and that's what makes the Bible so unique. It's the infallible revelation from God. And, well, we won't go into <laughs> that. I guess that's a, no, a whole other show for another day. People saying, yeah, how do you know that? The Bible is self-authenticating in, in a sense. So if, if you aren't assuming the authority of the scriptures, which that is, that's the main key problem that gets exposed in every professing Christian who might say, well, I think Genesis is poetry, poetic. Um, and this is what it means. I interpret it this way. We can still have evolution and the creation story. I've heard, I even had teachers tell that to me once when I was in middle school, I had a teacher tell me that like, as if that was comforting, you know, we, we can have both. And <clears throat> Lyle brings up and, and he, he refutes that from the, from a, just a hermeneutical stance in his book, Understanding Genesis. And it's quite long in his dialogue when he, he refutes the arguments Dr. Ross presents, but from a her so from a hermeneutical interpretation standpoint, it's not it does not hold up. It's not logical. It's not consistent with with the Bible. It, it really isn't. But aside from that, you can't just go well. 
we can we can take this literally. We can have this parcel out this. I don't like this. If you're doing that, you can't you can't. Uh, there's no hermeneutical space for <clears throat> for just accepting some parts of scripture and then denying others. You need Genesis eight twenty two. Well, you need all, you need to have all of scripture to be God breathed and and useful for teaching. Uh, training and rebuking, and you need it to all be consistent. You can't just choose a couple of verses to have and and use that for your worldview. And, and so that's a that is a key point as well. So given this, um, <clears throat> what if, let's say you let's say you just heard that and you're like, all right, great, because well, I'll, I'll give you my background a little bit. When I was a student, I think my thought was always that evidence for for creation and evidence for Genesis was being masked and all we were hearing in the secular worldview and in secular schools is evidence for evolution and it's like this battle of evidence and and the reality is that the evidence is all the same the evidence is all God's evidence uh, but the problem is that we interpret evidence di- different ways given our ultimate authorities and so when you're starting from a point of the world does have to be six billion years old. Well, then any evidence you give, you get or find is going to be interpreted given that. You have to have a given. Everyone does. There's not such a thing as like neutrally looking at evidence. It, it doesn't work that way. You have to have um, a presupposition. You just do. You, uh, <clears throat> and that's not a matter of, you go, well, I, I don't know what mine is, so I must not. That's that's not That doesn't logically and rationally hold up either. So, the difference, and Lyle gives us an example. Uh, he, he talks about, I think, if you were like, me- he gives an example in one of his lectures about measure- measuring shoes. Basically, you got two people, they're measuring shoes, and one person is saying, look, this shoe is a size 9, and the, and the other person goes, this shoe is a size 10, right? And they keep bringing in more shoes, more shoes, and they come up with different outcomes, and they're, they're, they're looking at the same evidence, the shoes, but they're coming up with different uh, different data, different conclusions, and so the problem isn't the evidence. It's not the problem. It's not the shoes. The problem is the ruler that they're using, and that's kind of how we have what we're, what we're seeing now. Here, we all are looking at the same evidence, and it is all God's evidence because we live in God's world, whether we accept or deny that. But if you are denying that, you have you can have a rescue device because you can start out with this is my ultimate authority, this is my ultimate assumption. So, oh. Uh, C14 can't last for more than a million years and it's everywhere in the world. Well, well then here's my rescue device for it. <clears throat> oh, comets only last 100,000 years. Here's my rescue device. Um, and they can do that for everything. Um, and, and in the video, I guess the lecture at the end here that we're going to play in our show, I have just a few notes. I think one of the most compelling undermining ones uh, Lyle presents right away has to do with DNA. He, he talks about how uh, that's where our information is. Talks about mutations, the law of information theory. Basically, we can't add brand new information. Um, at, at all point mutations turn out to reduce genetic information, not to increase it. So we've never observed a mutation that has added information to the genome. Mutations get rid of information, which can curve, convey survival. And that there are evolutionary processes that happen in the world that can do that. But you're, you can't, it undermines, uh, it can't drive evolution. That's what he says. It can't drive evolution because you're not adding any new information. <clears throat> and uh, another lecture I listened to with him this summer, he was giving examples about dogs and how different breeds of dogs have come about by way of mutations, by way of getting rid of information. Um, And so it can't drive evolution because you can't add information. I think that's the most 
that that most basic principle right there should go okay we have a problem here if if how what is driving evolution what is giving us new information we can't add information dna can't do that through mutations and so <clears throat> i think that's that's a huge issue in terms of just evidence but again rescue devices are are available because of the of the starting point and so if you're if you're sitting there and you're, you, you I hope my message has brought some people to realize it's not about getting in the arena and arguing over evidence okay that's the first thing to realize and if you're stuck there I don't think you're going to go anywhere and in fact you might end up in a in a predicament if you're just like well it's just about evidence so I'll I'll send my kid to school because yeah they're going to hear evidence from the other side but I can just bring him back and tell him well yeah that's not all true <clears throat> this or that at school. And I think that's a huge, the biggest issue in our country facing Christians is realizing that's not the, that's not the thing you should be scared about. The thing you should be scared about is that the government funded schools are not a neutral place, just presenting neutral facts that your son or daughter can then come back and interpret given the Bible's authority. They're presenting a worldview with an ultimate authority. And and if your son or daughter is not equipped to realize that their worldview is the only one that can uphold reality and it's the only one that can <clears throat> by which we have the necessary preconditions for all logic, rationality, science, if they're not aware of that, they're not going to be able to spot where the government funded secular worldview is being inconsistent. And that's the thing we have to train people, train Christians to realize is there's no such thing as neutrality. Everyone's coming in here with a worldview. Let's spot the inconsistencies in the non-biblical worldview. Let's rejoice and, and glorify God as we discover and learn about the consistencies of our worldview. And then let's go and evangelize. <clears throat> that's, that's my basic philosophy coming in here as a Christian living in the world is we need to have that. We need to train up our kids to be fascinated and and confident in their understanding of the objective truths that their worldview is the necessary precondition for what we're seeing. And it, it is consistent. And other worldviews can only operate by being inconsistent. They can operate. They will do science. They will do things. But they can't account for those things. <clears throat> we need to realize that. <clears throat> because what we're not saying is people without the Christian worldview have no knowledge or intelligence. In fact, it's just the opposite. Many, many non-Christian seculars are highly intelligent. If by intelligent, we're saying we are, we are saying intelligence is the, um, the functioning capacity of, of the mind. Many seculars are extremely brilliant. The, the problem is they're not, a, they can't account for much of their knowledge or any of their knowledge in an intellectual, logical sense. And thus, that's what the Bible means when it calls them fools, because we do know that all all knowledge has to begin, start with with God and with the Bible. Oh, I was going to find <laughs> find my Bible verses here. See, I didn't do enough show prep. I had that to bring up. But but anyway, that that's <clears throat> that is also important to realize <clears throat> as a Christian doing dialogue with secularists in any arena is is not coming across and in, in saying. Once you've laid out your defense, look, you guys can't even account for this. What are you saying? We have no knowledge or anything. No, you all, all we're saying is you're not. You can't account for that because you haven't. You haven't uh, realized, I guess, the the inconsistency of the foundations of where you're starting from. You can't account for these things. So, isn't that foolish? And what, what when you when you come to that point in the journey, what you, what what we realize is that individual who has rejected 
and suppress the truth of God that they, they know about, given Romans 1, is they're either going to look at you and go, wow, <clears throat> you're right, and bow their knee to God because the Holy Spirit has done a work in their hearts, replacing their heart of stone with a heart of flesh, or they're going to con- continue and dig their heels in in rebellion. Um, so that's another important thing. Theologically, we can know that that would be the response. So what's my take on on how what how do we approach this? If you're a teacher, if you're a parent, this is kind of how I've approached this, I guess, in my young education career is uh, my goal is to teach people how to think, not what to think. And, and that doesn't matter if they're a Christian or a non-Christian. Um, I believe it's important to to teach people laws of logic, teach them logical fallacies. We can present that to the Christian and to the non-Christian and <clears throat> and allow them to do the work on their own. And I think if you'd give now the reason I think this is the right thing to do biblically is if you are effective at teaching people how to think, there is only one conclusion they will come to if if they do this well, and that is the Christian worldview. Because we know you can't think completely consistently and logically without the Christian worldview. It's just a matter of if they'll bow the knee to that Christian God, to the Bible. Okay, <clears throat> and because I, I do think too, it's like many of the most brilliant secularists are completely aware that they need those principles that are only um, upheld by the God of the Bible, and they're aware of that. But they're still they hate God so much they'll, they'll still reject them, even though intellectually they understand that that is consistent. <clears throat> so I, I have the utmost respect really for people who have come to that point, despite their rebellion towards God. I have respect for their intellect to at least go, yeah, I, I get that, but I can't do it because I can't do God. I can't, you know. Um, so I, that's my my philosophy is, is teach people how to think, not what to think, Christian and non-Christian. Help them to see that they need to have reasons for their thinking and, and help them to see and identify inconsistencies in their own thought and others' thought. If you're a growing Christian and you're being sanctified uh, gradually, it's a process. And so you need to be aware that, that it's possible that you will have inconsistencies in your thought because of an incorrect interpretation of a verse, <clears throat> because of, of improper hermeneutics in your own walk with the Lord. And when that happens, it's it's not that the Bible wasn't the problem. It's you. You are the problem <laughs> as the Christian. That is possible. Okay, so you need to be be sharpening yourself, be sharpening other Christians by identifying those inconsistencies. Even if you're both on the same page, hey, we both want to submit to the authority of the word. Okay, but that doesn't mean you're going to perfectly interpret, use perfect laws of hermeneutics as you read through the Bible on the first pass. That doesn't work that way. So it's important to have these skills of identifying inconsistencies for your own benefit, not just to attack others. And, and really, you can't attack others until you understand in, in your own where you're standing as well. So, and I, I shouldn't say attack, but identifying, <clears throat> because that is how we, we help we help others to reason respectfully. That's what we should be doing as teachers, as as fathers, and as mothers is is you communicate these these truths respectfully always. So that's the first thing is teaching how to think. The second thing I would say is we we do need to challenge the movement of indoctrination, and what I mean by that is. Even though the, that schools are not a neutral environment, we need to keep them, as I like to say, as neutral as possible. <laughs> so whatever that means. Uh, but when you, cle- when you see clear examples 
of an agenda that is only rooted in an anti-God foundation, I think we need to stand up and, and, and expose that and go, look, if you guys are claiming to be neutral, we know there's no neutrality. If you're claiming to be neutral, you can't do this because what you're, what you're doing is you're assuming this God. <clears throat> okay. And, and we're, that is the scariest thing that we're seeing in schools that I'm worried is kind of overwhelming as, as secularists and, and people who hate God have come into leadership in schools and joined those teachers. Those schools become more and more and more anti-God because then they hire people who are anti-God. They hire people who agree with them. And pretty soon you've got 98% of the teachers, 98% of the administration hates God. And they're all on board with that. So they're not being neutral at all. And so I, I think as Christians, if you're in an environment where that's that's your school, you need to somehow be willing to stand up um, and expose the really obvious things and um, be willing to force those people to explain themselves. Because when they when they do, they're not going to be able to um, do things neutrally at all. <clears throat> so that needs to be brought out somehow if you're in the public school environment. But third, I think the ultimate solution, honestly, guys, is is homeschooling. And and you need if you want to give your Christian there's a great there's a great Amazon series out Doug Wilson is doing Man Rampant and he talked about education um, and the call and how the Bible really is calling us I can't remember the verses he 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 referenced about the command obviously to raise up our kids but how how that education when we're sending them away to a government school that is that is rooted and founded right now we've kind of talked about these foundations it's not just a neutral place it is an, a form of indoctrination like is that responsible as a christian parent to send away your child to a place where they're going to be indoctrinated i don't think so you want you want them to be indoctrinated in the word so um you're really rolling the dice i mean you just completely are so i think i think ultimately homeschool is the solution not only because it's gonna it's gonna undermine and expose the fact that the public schools are not neutral people are gonna have to go look yeah we have a god over here in the public schools and we have a god over here in the homeschool right and that's that's the reality so the more people who decide to shift to homeschool the more that's going to be obvious so i do think if you're able to homeschool you should do it and if you are not then you need to go up and and pay attention closely to those top points of are you teaching your children how to think not what to think and are you doing it by rooting them in an excitement for the consistency of the biblical worldview if you're doing that then you can then you can pray for your child and hope that as you send them out into the public schools equipped truly equipped to stand firm that they will stand firm because they will if you've truly equipped them and if, and if God is is working in their lives and protecting them they'll be there but but I, I think it's a little naive to just go yeah we go to church every Sunday maybe the church isn't even a good church you know not not teaching solid <clears throat> exegetical preaching every week right we go to church every Sunday and my kids in the public school that's the way we witness Ah oh, man that's risky because because what the reality is is you're sending them to a place of indoctrination so they don't they're not just witnessing they have to be like ready to identify uh, problems. They have to be ready to defend themselves and not just equipped to do that, but then have the the guts to do that. Those are two different things. Like the ability to defend the Christian faith is one thing, and that's a hard thing. A work of sanctification, a work of time, a work of study, not something that you just do because you prayed and confessed Jesus is Lord. 
right? That didn't. It, that's the start, but that's not. Once you confess Jesus as Lord, that doesn't mean you can walk out into the square fully equipped to defend your faith the same on the same level as Jason Lyle, right? So pursuing that to a degree where you, as a parent, go, my son or daughter, I think can has the ability to to do these basics and this is why it's great that jason lyle actually has made you know curriculum for homeschool parents for first second third fourth fifth grade explaining these very principles that are fundamental i bought it because i was like i think i need this you know and i think we all should start there most of us are are there most of us are not theologians who spent hours upon hours and months of study and and are not like jason lyle and have an astrophysicist degree <clears throat> so start there Okay. Uh, finally, the last thing I'll say is don't just focus on evidence. This goes kind of for everyone in the workplace and all that. Don't just focus on evidence. Sure, all evidence is God's evidence. But the secularist is looking at the same evidence, coming to a different conclusion. And that is because and only because of their starting point. So because of their ultimate authority, because of their ultimate presupposition, right? That's why they're using the same evidence you are coming to a different conclusion. So what's our duty? Well, I, I believe our duty is to understand the beauty of the consistency of our worldview, okay? That's the first thing. And honestly, this is what it means to worship God, to know God. There's nothing more exciting that, than realizing the truth, the ultimate truth, right? That God is real and that his scriptures are his, infallible revelation. If you're studying that, that'll pull you out of depression. If you're studying that, that will excite your faith. Okay? You don't need to go to some seminar about um, how to how to have a burning fire for God and and get all emotional about it. Okay? It's here already. So work for it. Work and search for the the wisdom that begins with the knowledge of God, begins with the Bible and and pursue it like the Bible calls you to like the treasure that it is. So that's your first your first thing is your first thing you have to do is is to understand the beauty of the consistency of our worldview and it's fun. It is honestly. Like studying about the canon is amazing. It's amazing to rejoice in this. And it's amazing to rejoice in the, this book understanding Genesis and learning how to analyze and interpret scripture and the beauty of its truth and the beauty of its consistency. There's been nothing in in my walk with God that's been more um anchoring to the soul. And it's, that's the point. It's, that's what it is. You know? So understand the beauty of the consistency because when you do, you'll realize that, that when we say we have faith, it's not because we're just blindly saying, yep, I just accept this. Our faith is only, it's only faith in the sense that we can't perceive things with our physical senses. That is the definition there. But that doesn't mean we don't have an objective way to prove the Bible to be true. We do. We need to learn that. We need to learn our objective way to prove it. That, but we still have to have faith because in, in the sense that we can't perceive these things with our senses. We can't go back and touch and taste and experience the six days of creation. Um, okay, seven days, counting the day of rest. So that's, that's an important distinction is to, is to know that if you were trapped into a corner and a secularist just caught you somehow and you're, well, see, you just have blindly accepted that on faith. Something happened, right? You're, you as the Christian are not blindly um, chalking up things you can't explain to faith. Okay, don't be satisfied with that. There are mysteries in, the, in, in our walk, mysteries, things we don't understand. But that doesn't mean we as a Christian have the right to just chalk up things we can't explain to faith, okay? Because even though there are things, there's a, it's a lot less <laughs> than you realize because the Bible is, is an incredible revelation of truth. Um, so that's, that's a call there. 
Um, and the second thing is once you understand that biblically con- the beauty of the consistency of our worldview is to understand why the secular worldview is not consistent. Okay, that's the second thing is once you start understanding that, you'll start to realize where the holes are. But then the final step is how do you properly and gently explain that in a way that honors and glorifies God? So you need to learn how to properly and gently explain it in a way that honor, honors and glorifies God. That should be your first priority. I, I wouldn't be concerned primarily with the strategy of doing apologetics in a way that might effectively convert someone because, again, our theology is, one, that's not the primary goal. The Bible says the primary goal is to proclaim the truth of God, the one true God. That's his command is to proclaim his truth and to defend it. That's worship. So that's the primary goal. And second, the act, the, the work of a conversion is truly the work of the Holy Spirit on the heart of stone. So when we come across and we proclaim truth— if the Holy Spirit is working on that person's heart, they will accept it. But if 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 it's not, they're they're not going to. And so it doesn't matter how much um, finesse you have and what type of way you're doing it. I do believe that that we as humans, because God has chosen to use us as the means to accomplish His work of saving. So even though. The Holy Spirit is the thing that ultimately must do a work on that heart of stone. We are the hands and feet going and delivering this. So I don't think that's to say that those of you who have a, a gift in realizing, I think if I if I come at it this angle with this person, I could be more effective. I, I think those reasonings, that rational thought, logic there is is something you should utilize because God's given it to you if you believe that. But you should at, you should always be submitting those thoughts to the reality that ultimately I can't uh, I can't save this person with something that isn't going to be good to save them to. What you save someone with is what you're going to save them to. So you need to see you should honor God by saving them with the gospel and and as offensive as that would be to the natural man. It's your duty to do that. If you finesse it so much that you're saving them to a false gospel, saving them with a false gospel, you've just saved them to a false gospel. And I think that's where the debate of evidential apologetics versus traditional apologetics versus presuppositional apologetics is. That's the heart right there is to remember that what we save them with is what we save them to. We want them bowing the knee to God as God and worshiping God as God. And realizing that beauty and that consistency there, because when we save them to that, we've really saved them. Right. And um, I think that's something to keep in mind. So as you're as you have people in the workplace, friends in the workplace, cousins, relatives, use your intuition that God's given you the relationship skills, building that. But trust that he will be effective when you bring the truth. Right. Bring it. Let God do the rest. There is something to be said about that. I think. Um, And we're not doing those people a service by giving them a false sense of security or a false gospel that kind of can more gently be slid into their life. Okay. The gospel is offensive to the natural man. It's saving truth, faith, worship, awesome joyfulness to the heart of flesh when the Holy Spirit does that work of regeneration. That's something really important to remember. Um, We have... Uh, so yeah, I, even if we know that it's going to ruffle feathers, always preserve the gospel's integrity and fullness. That's very important. I have another, there's a Q&A here. So this is, again, Jason Lyle, who was asked from, uh, he was in a, this is an interview from 2017. And the question was, what is the purpose of education? This is what he said. The purpose of education is learning to think like Christ. When you put it that way, you realize most schools really don't do that. 
the extent to which they teach people to think like Christ is almost an accident. Yes, you can go to a secular school and learn math, but you don't really learn what math is. Math is the way God thinks about numbers. It works and applies to this world because God's mind upholds this world. That's why math is beautiful. Most students don't view it that way. They don't see it as applicable. I appreciate the master's university and some, this is a school that was interviewing him, and some of the very few colleges that really do devote themselves to training students to think like Christ. We are supposed to cast down arguments that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought in obedience to Christ. Even from a non-Christian perspective, education is supposed to teach you to think rationally and have good reasons for what you believe. So I guess I'm glad right there. Um, that he, he we, we share some of those thoughts, right? That uh, education is supposed to teach you to think rationally and have good reasons for what you believe. I'll keep going here. To think rationally is to think like a Christian because we have the best reason to believe what we believe. I would caution parents to be very careful where they send their kids. Often they are not going to be educated properly, but rather trained to think as secular humanists. That's kind of that indoctrination element I guess we're kind of talking about. <clears throat> That's not really education. That is brainwashing. Yes, they will get some good information, but they will get a lot of false information too. Little kids generally believe in God, but when you send them to the public school system and they spend more than a decade of their life learning secular humanism, you shouldn't be surprised if they come out little secular humanists. The next question was, how do you, how do you go about sharing your faith through astronomy? How should others do so? He says, it's easy to bring God into the conversation about science because God is what makes science possible. God upholds the universe in a consistent fashion, places patterns in nature for us to discover, and gives us the capacity for rational thought so we can consider the options and choose the best. If the universe were really just chance, why would you expect to find patterns at all? Why would we expect our brains to have the capacity to reason if the brain itself is just an accident that resulted from mutations? Science is predicated on the Christian worldview. I would then go into specifics and show the way things are designed in nature, especially in biology. Most people at a secular level have no clue how well-designed human beings are. It's astonishing. God recorded the information to make a human being on DNA, which is basically a long molecule. We think the amount of information on a Blu-ray is impressive. God put the information for making you in a molecule. Those are some of the details I would bring up. But just the fact that science is possible is proof of the Christian worldview. And that's, that's there right there when people are saying, what's, what's, what's the evidence for the Christian worldview? Well, the fact that science is even possible at all. Evidence itself is evidence for proof of the Christian worldview. Keep going here. Whatever that person's interest is, I'm going to ask them how that would make sense apart from the Christian worldview. So this is the part we're kind of going into, right? Is to, is to get to the core of the issue. How can you account for those things given your worldview? This is how we work. We don't just fight over evidence. We go, okay, given that... How can you account for that given your, apart from the Christian worldview? So that's what he's saying there. I've never had anybody give me a good answer because everything only makes sense in light of the Christian worldview. This is true. That's absolutely 100% true, right? So when you ask the secularist to give a good reason, you already know there isn't a good reason, okay? But but the the point is, is, is showing them to look down in the boat and notice that there's holes in the boat and that they're sinking. That's what you're trying to get them to do. Okay, we all realize we're in the water. We all realize we have the same evidence. You want you want to have that person have a coming to Jesus moment, so to speak, by going, can I account for this? And to make them explain that. And I love it. I love what he says. I've never had anybody give me a good answer because everything only makes sense in light of the Christian worldview. This is what you see in his dialogue in his books, too. It's like 200 pages of people trying to go back and forth with Jason Lyle. And it's like meticulous, 
you know, bringing in part like, nope, that's, nope, almost, nope, that's illogical, nope, here's a logical fallacy here, no, that's not true, right, it's, um, that's not a correct interpretation of that, here's why, right, he doesn't just say, he doesn't just make arbitrary statements, he's always supporting them with reasoning and logical reasoning, which is what we're called to do. Okay, he goes, uh, only, everything only makes sense in light of the Christian worldview. All the wisdom and treasures of knowledge are deposited in Christ, according to Colossians 2.3. Let's say someone is interested in animal conservation. Animal conservation really is a Christian principle because God has given us dominion over this planet. If a non-Christian is interested in conservation, I'm going to start asking questions to get them to think. Well, how would that make sense? Because you told me you believe in evolution. How would it make sense to try and protect protect the species when evolution is all about the strong dominating over the weak and eventually eliminating them? That's how evolution is supposed to proceed, so animal conservation is anti-evolution by its very nature. There is some inconsistency in their thinking, and I'm going to be very polite, but I'm ultimately going to get them to think through those inconsistencies. Can we do that? Colossians 2.3 and Romans 1 should help Christians have an appropriate boldness. Romans 1.18-19 says that God has revealed himself to everyone, so we don't need to convince unbelievers God exists. The Bible says they already know that, but suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What I try to do is expose that suppressed knowledge by demonstrating the way an unbeliever behaves, affirms God as creator. So you're basically kind of trying to show them like, see, you're affirming God as creator because of your beliefs. You're affirming that truth, but you're just suppressing it. My goal as an apologist is to help them over the stumbling blocks. I think it is very good for every Christian to know the basics of science, especially creation, because that is the most attacked area of the Bible. It's not my job to convince the person. It's my job to bring a defense. And if God is going to call that person to repent, it's up to him, capital H, God, right? Cool. Man. Oh, and then the next question is, what can we expect in this upcoming astronomy class? Cool. I want to go to Master's University. Maybe I should go there. Interesting. Good place to send your kid. Where is the Master's University? Oh, anyway, Jason Lyle's in Colorado Springs, so we should go make, pay a visit to him. See if he'll support the Skeologians podcast, especially after our big shout-out here. Who knows? Maybe maybe he'll take a listen. Um, we can we can show it to him. So there it is, right? After all that, now let's go back to the John Kerry quote, right? <laughs> Do we think that John Kerry has this similar belief, God is the God of science? I, I'm, I hope you've stayed with us and enjoyed this whole program and that it's been beneficial, challenging for you. Um, I would like to post here this this second half of the of our broadcast is going to be playing Lyle's lecture. It's about forty nine minutes long um, that he gives on the ultimate proof of creation. Of course, you can buy the book Ultimate Proof of Creation. I haven't read that one. I have it. I've read Understanding Genesis now. That book was awesome. It cites uh, talks about ultimate proof of creation. I've heard others who have read that book, and it's it's kind of been life changing for them too, in a sense. Um, really excited them about their faith. Uh, and I think that's the important part is when you start to learn the consistency of the biblical worldview, it, it does make you excited because you're learning who the real God is better and you're 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 worshiping him by learning about the truths he's revealed to you. That's why I liked this book too, Understanding Genesis, because the focus is on the hermeneutical spiral and why we can trust that. And that's at the heart of of grabbing things from scripture because it's one, you know, uh, the book I read before this was Canon Revisited by uh, Michael Kruger. And that was kind of all about, here's why you know that, here's why you can know that the Bible is the clear, objective, infallible revelation 
from God, the one true God. This book, Understanding Genesis, is all about here's how you know that there can be here's how you know that there's only one meaning from from the scriptures and how to find that and why that is scripturally based. Script why scripture is interpreting scripture, why scripture is authoritative. So what I probably should do is go back and reread both of those books now. (laughs) But anyway, The Ultimate Proof of Creation would be a good one. But this lecture, I'm assuming, you know, kind of going to walk through some of those main points of the book. Like I said, I haven't read the book, so I can't verify that. But stay with us on this program. Hope you've enjoyed Skeologians. It's our God, the God of science. We will see you. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, too, as we're posting this on Black Friday. Um, uh. No, I mean, I'm not going to dive into Black Friday. So. I do just want to say, too, I apologize. We never got to our Greg Bonson article, which would have been fun to read. Maybe we can do that again on a follow-up show. <clears throat> there was a quote from here I wanted to share years ago. David Hume noted that scientists proceed on a scientifically unfounded yet critically essential belief in the uniformity of observable nature. Yet he pointed out there's no reason beyond psychological habit for the naturalistic scientist to expect the sun to come up tomorrow. Science is an autonomous, self-contained discipline and has no honest answer to Hume. But if science, properly conceived, subordinates itself to God's revelation, then it knows why the sun will come up, for it knows that God providentially controls all the operations of his created universe in a regular and dependable fashion. I just I wanted to share that one point there from the article because it's... And the, and the Bonson one's a little bit longer, but he, he talks a lot about some of the same things um, and um, that, that we mentioned in our other article... Uh, Basically, the, the title of this one is Revelation, Speculation, and Science, um, posted on 2009 on the Answers in Genesis website. Uh, Greg Bonson, I think he passed away in the mid-90s, so they must have posted this later. But And, he, and all of his materials are kind of coming out, coming up a little bit more now. People are trying to post his lectures. If you if you have a chance to listen to Greg Bonson, he's kind of the master at this stuff, the discussion and, and apologetics. Um, but I do like Jason Lyle as well. Coming, he's a younger guy, obviously, but coming across from his astrophysicist background, it kind of, you know, again, depends on on what you what you want to focus on, maybe more. If you're really curious about the guy who who has a lot more knowledge of the actual evidence, but also understands the presuppositional component, I would I highly encourage you to read a lot of Jason Lyle. If you're really into those, the logical, he has a book here that I bought that I don't think I'm going to be able to finish called The Science of Einstein, just because it just seems way too confusing. Uh, <laughs> but if you are someone who is <clears throat> really into the theology side of presuppositional apologetics and um, also the psych- psychological, philosophical side, um, Bonson has, I, I got to read his PhD, his dissertation is, is about self-deception. I think that's kind of would be interesting, but just at the time, but, but Greg Bonson is kind of the master debater. So, um, if you're, if you're sort of in the arena and you, you want to better equip yourself, I highly encourage you to listen to, to lectures by Greg Bonson. So, all right, here we go. This is the ultimate proof of creation lecture by Jason Lyle. Well, just a privilege to be with you this evening. I'm, I'm happy to be back and talk about the ultimate proof of creation. This is one of my favorites to give. You know, when we're, when we're out there witnessing, we want people to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we do. And, uh, of course, people have the impression that science is somehow antagonistic to the Bible, and that's why it's so important that we have presentations like Dr. Snelling just gave, and I do some on astronomy where we show people that the science confirms that God's word is true. And as we and as we go about doing evangelism and showing people, hey, you need Jesus to be saved, 
there are objections that come out. That people say, oh, no, you can't trust the Bible anymore because of, then they come up with these pseudoscientific arguments. Apologetics is about helping people over those stumbling blocks. And it's very useful to study some of these lines of scientific evidence and geology and astronomy and biology and so on. But people have said, boy, there's all this information out there. Is there one argument I can use that just, that settles the issue? And I've got good news for you because there is. There is, a, there is a, an ultimate proof of creation, an argument that absolutely demonstrates that creation is true for which there is no rebuttal. And I want to share that with you today. It's a, it's a method that works every time, and by works, I mean there's no, there's, there's no response to it. There's no logical response. I'm going to show you that the Christian worldview, beginning with biblical creation, is the only rational possibility. Any alternative to that is self-refuting. It destroys itself. And when you use this argument on people, and I encourage you to do so, you may find that they don't necessarily convert. Some of them might, some of them might not. And that may, people, well, people say, well, then is it really an ultimate proof? And the answer is yes, just because uh, people are not necessarily persuaded by an argument doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the argument necessarily. There's a difference between proof and persuasion. I'm giving you a proof, an objective argument, the conclusion of which is that creation is true and there's no rebuttal to it. Now, whether or not the person is persuaded, that's a different issue. You can't ultimately persuade people, ultimately. We want to be persuasive in the way we present things, but it's up to the Holy Spirit to bring persuasion. See, my job is not to bring persuasion. People get confused by that. They think, well, I want to work on people's heartstrings. And No, no, that's up to God. Let God be God. Let Him do that. It's our job to give a defense. That's what the Bible tells us. We're to be ready to give an answer, and I've got a great argument for you, one that works every time in the sense that the person will not have a rational comeback. Words might come out of his mouth, but he's not going to have a rational comeback. He's not going to be able to defend his faith against the Christian worldview. So you see, just because somebody doesn't cry uncle, that doesn't mean I don't have him in a headlock. That doesn't mean this isn't a really good argument. People are not rigorously rational sometimes, and sometimes they don't embrace an argument that's really good but they will embrace arguments that are bad. That's what logical fallacies are, bad arguments that people tend to find convincing. People say, well, if there's an ultimate proof, then is Christianity a faith system? And the answer is yes. It's just one that's objectively provable. Uh, really? Uh, people confuse faith, what, what the meaning of faith is. Faith is when you have confidence in something that you have not perceived with your senses. Now, I can't perceive creation with my senses, but that doesn't mean I can't demonstrate it objectively. I want to start with some of the scientific evidence, some of which we've covered, some of this will be new, uh, to show you some things that are good to get people to think about uh, creation. For example, laws of information. There's a whole field of information theory, and we find, for example, that when information is transmitted, it can be copied and it can even be lost, but information is never gained in the process of transmission. Dr. Vernaget, one of the world's experts on information theory, says when its progress along the chain of transmission events is traced backwards, every piece of information leads to a mental source, the mind of the sender. What he's saying there is if you find a book and it's got information in it, that book might be a copy of a copy of a copy, but ultimately it goes back to a mind. Somebody wrote that. Xerox machine could malfunction and reduce the information in the book, it, it might duplicate it accidentally, but you don't have any new information. You just have duplicated information. But it's not going to add brand new instructions. You, we sort of know that. And of course, that's interesting because DNA has information in it. 
DNA has the instructions that make your physical form and perhaps even to some extent your personality and so on. All that encoded on a molecule, amazing. And how, could, how did that come about? How did you get your instructions? Well, you got it from your parents, they got it from their parents and so on, all the way back to Adam and Eve, and they got it from God. So that, that information's been copied many times, but it goes back to a mind. It's not possible for it to be the result of mutations in natural selection because information always comes from a mind according to the laws of information theory. Uh, in fact, mutations don't help. They might, oh, they might convey survival value under certain circumstances, but they don't add brand new information. Dr. Lee Spetner confirms that. He says, all point mutations that have been studied on a molecular level turn out to reduce the genetic information, not to increase it. He says, not even one mutation has been observed that adds a little information to the genome. You know, it's possible to improve your survival in certain circumstances by removing information from the genome. That's how, that's how these so-called helpful mutations work. But they can't drive evolution because they're not adding any new instructions to your DNA. So you see, genetics confirms creation. It does not confirm millions of years of evolution. Not at all. We could talk about the age of the Earth. Dr. Snelling's already talked a lot about that. I like coming back to the C14 example, the fact that you find C14 in diamonds. They can't be billions of years old, like the evolutionists would, would like them to be. They can't be that old because C14 doesn't last that long. If the entire Earth were nothing but C14, after one million years, you wouldn't have a single atom of it left. That's how quick it decays. And so they can't even be one million years old, let alone billions. I find this really compelling, the fact that you find just about everything has carbon in it that we can dig up. If it has sufficient carbon, it'll have C14 in it. So it tells me the entire Earth, you see, is not millions of years old, let alone billions. So geology confirms biblical creation and a recent flood, worldwide flood. It doesn't confirm millions of years of slow, gradual processes. Comets, they disintegrate quickly. They cannot last millions of years. They just can't because that material is being blasted away by solar heat and radiation. In fact, that's what forms a comet's tail. That's material that the comet's losing, and it can't do that forever. A typical comet can last no more than 100,000 years maximum before it's gone. And it may seem, with all these lines of evidence, that I've refuted evolution, that I've proved that creation is true, but it re I really haven't. Because for every one of these lines of evidence, and these are good lines of evidence, don't get me wrong, I wouldn't repeat them if they were fallacious or anything like that, but for every one of these lines of evidence, an evolutionist can always invoke what we might call a rescuing device. He can come up with a hypothesis that protects his worldview from what seems to be contrary evidence. And so, for example, with comets, my secular colleagues are well aware that comets can't last billions of years. They know that. They can do the same math that I can do. But they would say, oh, well, there's this, there must be a comet generator that makes new ones then, you see, which they call an Oort cloud after the guy who came up with the idea. You see, so as the old comets are disintegrated, there's this comet generator that makes new ones and they, they replace the old ones. So you see, the solar system can be billions of years old after all. How about that? The Oort cloud is supposed to be a big sphere of potential comets orbiting way out beyond the planets where we can't detect it. And every now and then, one of these potential comets is thrown into the inner solar system and becomes a brand new comet. Pretty clever. Now, if I were to ask a secular astronomer, do you have any observational evidence of an Oort cloud? If he's honest, he'll say, well, no. But if he's clever, he'll say, but you can't prove it's not there. And that's true. I can't disprove the existence of an undetectable comet generator. It's undetectable. How could I, how could I do that? And see, for every line of evidence, scientific evidence that you present, there's always going to be a rescuing device. If the person is sufficiently clever, there's going to be a rescuing device. You know, you'd say, well, the information never 
never comes about by chance. Somebody says, well, as, you know, as far as we know, but there could be some unknown mechanism. You see, that, in, that increases the information in DNA. Or um, they'll, you'll say, um, what about the C14 in diamonds? Well, there's some unknown contamination. There's always a rescuing device. And before you get too hard on the evolutionists for having rescuing devices, we need to realize that we have them too. Yeah, if somebody asks you about an alleged contradiction in the Bible, two verses that maybe you're not all that familiar with, your first inclination is not to say, well, yeah, I've got to throw the Bible away. I can't be a Christian anymore. Your first inclination is to say, well, I don't know those two verses real well. Let me get back with you on that. Let me start. There, there's some explanation. Give me time. I'll find it. You see, we all have our rescuing devices. That's not the, that's not the issue. The issue is the fact that we all have the same evidence, but we interpret it according to our respective worldviews. I don't really blame my secular colleague for inventing an Oort cloud. That's consistent with his belief that the solar system is billions of years old and his observation that there are comets. And then he looks and he says, well, yep, Oort cloud. I, look, I start from you know, creation, God's word is truth. I look, at, um, this, I look and see comets. I say, yep, solar system is young. Makes sense. We have the same evidence we have different interpretations because of our different worldviews. We all have the same facts. People tend to think of the creation versus evolution debate as who has more facts. Well, we all have the same facts. We have access to the same fossils, the same DNA patterns, access to the same stars and galaxies. We do science pretty much the same way, really. I do physics and chemistry pretty much the same way as my secular colleagues and so on. What we have different is our starting point, which you can think of like uh, mental glasses. And of course, um, you know, you put on glasses, it's going to affect the way you see things. A lot of you wear uh, prescription lenses. I like to think of the Bible like prescription lenses designed just for you. You put those on, the world snaps into focus, you see things as they are. Because the Bible's the correct view of history, so it's like corrective lenses. I like to think of evolution like red glasses. You put on red glasses, you're going to say, well, the world is red, everything's red. No, it, it really isn't, but that's what you're going to think because you've you got those glasses on. That's going to affect your way of thinking. And I realize my evolutionary colleagues will say, oh, no, we're wearing the right glasses. You're wearing the wrong glasses. We're going to have to argue for that. My point is we all have mental glasses. We all have a way of thinking about things that consists of our presuppositions. That those are your most basic beliefs about reality, the rules of interpretation that you assume at the outset before any investigation of the evidence. Before you begin to do any experiment on a rock or whatever to find out what it's made of or how old it is, whatever, you already come to that with some beliefs. Yes, you do. Nobody comes to the evidence neutrally. For example, the belief that your senses are basically reliable. You don't come to the rock and think, you know, I'm going to do some experiments on that rock, but you know, it's probably not even there. Just because I see it, it's pro my senses probably are not reliable. You don't assume that. Uh, that's, that's, that's taken for granted. The reliability of your memory. I mean, some of you are thinking, well, my memory's not so reliable, but presumably you think that the memories you do have actually happened. Isn't that right? How do you know that? How do you know your memory's reliable? You might say, well, Dr. Lyle, I took a test two weeks ago. I got an A on it. It was a memory test. Did very well on it. How do you know you took a memory test two weeks ago? Right? You'd say, well, I remember. Well, you see, my point, you'd have to already assume that your memory's reliable in order to even argue for it. That's the nature of a presupposition. Can't get away from that. They're, ne they're necessary, or that there are laws of logic, and so on. These are all things that we take for granted. Now, some people might say, oh, no, not me. I don't have these presuppositions. I come to the evidence neutrally. I don't have beliefs about evidence. That's the way we should do things. And my response would be, well, that's a very interesting belief about how things should be interpreted, isn't it? 
You see, the philosophy that we should come to the evidence without a philosophy is itself a philosophy. It's just a really bad one because it's self-refuting. Now, the kicker is creationists and evolutionists have competing worldviews. We have different sets of presuppositions, different rules for interpreting the evidence. And as a result of that, we come to different conclusions. That's where the battleground lies. It's about worldviews. And we have an ultimate standard that drives our worldview. For the creationist, the Bible is the ultimate standard, or at least it should be. And that we should interpret all evidence in light of what God has said in His Word. If it really is the infallible Word of God, we better pay attention to that. We should base our thinking on it. Now, I have secondary standards as well. I do believe that my senses are basically reliable. But that's not my ultimate standard. Because I know my senses can be fooled. Ever seen an optical illusion? And you know it can't be real because you've got a greater presupposition that tells you, well, that's impossible, even though I see it. My senses are not my ultimate standard. The Bible's my ultimate standard. What about for the evolutionist? What is his or her ultimate standard? There are different varieties of evolutionists out there, but often naturalism is their ultimate standard, or alternatively, strict empiricism, usually one of those two. Naturalism is the belief that nature's all that there is, and therefore you can't allow for miracles or anything supernatural when you're doing science. Or, when, or sometimes they'll say you can't, you can't allow for it at all. Others, others say, well, methodologically you can't allow for it. When you're doing science, you can't, you can't invoke the supernatural. That's a philosophy, folks. Or strict empiricism, the belief that all truth claims are answered empirically by observation. If you want to know something, do an experiment. Oh, I believe some truth claims are answered that way, but not all of them. See, the problem is a lot of people want to try and use scientific evidence to prove the Bible's true, and I want to suggest that's not the right approach. The, the scientific evidence is used to show people that, that we really have a worldview that connects with reality. It confirms Scripture. Evidence by itself is never decisive when it comes to a worldview issue, and that's because your worldview tells you what to make of the evidence. And I have a silly illustration for this I like to use. There was a man who was convinced that he was dead. He thought that he himself was dead. He's really upset about this. He doesn't like being dead. And his doctor's trying to convince him, look, fellow, you're perfectly healthy. You're, you're walking and talking. And the guy thinks, yeah, but bodies can have muscle spasms even after clinical death. That could explain my ability to walk and talk. The doctor says, but look, I have medical charts showing you're perfectly healthy. And the guy says, yeah, but uh, medical charts can be falsified. And maybe the name got swapped. And who knows if you're interpreting that right anyway. The doctor thinks, okay, I'm going to prove to you that you're not dead. Do dead men bleed? And the guy thinks about it. Well, no, the circulatory system would be stopped. No, dead men don't bleed. The doctor very quickly takes a little pin, pricks the guy in the hand. Sure enough, a little blood comes to the surface. See, you're bleeding. And, of course, the man responds, well, how about that? I guess dead men do bleed. Right? <laughs> Did the doctor have evidence of his position? Sure. Guy could walk and talk, medical charts, guy could bleed. Did they persuade the guy? No, because his worldview that he was dead told him how to interpret each of those lines of evidence. And that's exactly the way it is when it comes to a worldview debate. Absolutely. You can present evidence that's as powerful as you, as, as you can imagine. If it doesn't deal with the person's worldview, they're just going to reinterpret it according to their worldview. People don't need more evidence, more reasons to believe. That's not what they need. What they need is that their worldview challenged. That's what it comes down to. You might have great evidence. See how this evidence confirms the Bible is true? And you should do some of that. You should point that out to people. I think fossils are fantastic evidence of the worldwide flood. That's what I'd expect. But that's because I'm looking at it properly through the lens of Scripture. My secular colleague, what's he going to say? Uh, well, that's not how I see it. 
he'll come up with some rescuing device to explain that fossil or whatever the evidence is on his worldview. And the funny thing is we're inclined to think, well, yeah, I guess that wasn't a, such a good evidence. Wasn't, it didn't convince him after all. So we, we said, well, let's try something else then, right? Let's try make more evidence. Well, that'll do the trick. And look, look how canyons can form quickly. And, and uh, you know, how about this? And he says, well, no, that's not how I see it. Just because that one formed quickly doesn't mean they all do. Look, rock layers can be laid down quickly. Mount St. Helens demonstrated that. He says, well, just because those ones do doesn't mean these ones do. But look, animals reproduce after their kind. That's what we'd expect. He says, yeah, but given enough time, one kind will change into another. Or what about information in DNA? Well, we don't know how that got there, but give us time, we'll find it. Mutations do it somehow. Oh, but there's comets out in space. No problem. There's an Oort cloud. You see? Don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to show people evidence and how the Bible makes sense of it. In fact, I think we should do some of this. I do some talks along those lines. I think that's important because we live in a culture where people think that the Bible's anti-science. They think that to be scientific is to be unbiblical. We need to show them that there is a biblical way to look at things, to look at the evidence. That's important. But my point is if that's all you're doing, if you're up against a sufficiently clever person, it's not going to be persuasive to him, nor, nor should it be, because you haven't proved anything. All you've done is said, we can look at it this way. Okay, but he can look at it this way. A philosophically astute person will not be persuaded by mere evidence, nor should he, because that's not what the debate's about. It's about worldviews. It's perfectly good to show people evidence and how the Bible makes sense of it, but this by itself will not resolve a debate over worldviews because your worldview tells you what to make of the evidence. And why is it that we don't get this? For the most part, I think it's because we spend most of our time with people that have the same, basically the same worldview that we have. And when you have the same worldview, yeah, you can use evidence by itself to persuade people because they'll interpret it the same way you do. They got the same worldview. If you and I have a disagreement over the price of eggs, we can go to the store and we can look at the price and we can say, yeah, we, you know, okay, I was right. See, there's the price. But if I'm arguing with somebody who has a, a Hindu worldview, right, he believes that the, the world is all illusion, all maya, and I say, well, see, I'm right. He says, nope, that's illusion too. If you've got a different worldview, you can't just throw evidence at people and expect them to change their mind. You have to, you have to deal with those worldviews. We have to challenge, not on this level, because we all have the same evidence, we have to challenge on this level. We have to get back to the worldview issue. So how are we going to get anywhere then? I'm standing on my biblical presuppositions. My friend is standing on his secular presuppositions. We can't just throw evidence at each other because we're always going to interpret it in light of our worldview, our presuppositions. So how do we get anywhere? Before I give you the right answer, I want to give you the wrong answer because evolutionists often will say, well, let's meet on neutral ground. Surely there are some things we can agree on. Somewhere in the middle, neutral things. And, but, but I don't agree that the Bible is the Word of God, so you've got to give that up. And a lot of Christians are persuaded by that. They think, well, yeah, if he doesn't believe in the Bible, I guess I can't use the Bible, right? Is that really logical? If the guy said, I, I don't believe in logic, would you say, well, I guess I can't use logic to debate with you then? If he says, I don't believe in air, would you hold your breath? If he doesn't believe in the Bible, that's his problem, right? But anyway, a lot of Christians are fooled by this. They think, well, yeah, we have to leave the Bible out of the discussion, just stick to science, because that's all he believes in. Let's meet on neutral ground. The problem is there is no neutral ground. The Bible makes that clear. Jesus says, who is not with me is against me, and who does not gather with me scatters. You're with Christ or you're against him, you see. And the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It's not neutral toward God. It's hostile toward God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is, what, neutrality to God? No, it's hostility toward God. 
You get the picture? You're God's friend or his enemy. You're with him, you're against him. You're gathering, you're scattering. There is no neutral. And so Dr. Bonson liked to call that the pretended neutrality fallacy, the idea that we can sort of pretend to be neutral. But the Bible says there's no such thing. And so the claim of neutrality is itself unbiblical because it contradicts Scripture. See, the Bible says there's no neutral when it comes to an ultimate standard. And if you say, oh, yes, there is neutral and I'm neutral, well, you've just said the Bible's wrong, in which case you're not being neutral. You've taken a position. The nature of the claim forces us to be with God or against God. So if somebody says, yeah, let's meet on neutral ground, leave the Bible out of the discussion, we, we certain things we agree on, like science and so on, we can talk about those issues, and you say, yeah, okay, we can leave the Bible out of the discussion, and I'll show you that creation's true, and the Bible really is the Word of God, it's infallible. But neutral ground is secular ground. The Bible says there's no such thing. And if you agree to those terms, you've lost. Because you see, the whole debate is about whether or not the Bible really is the Word of God. That's what origins really is all about. Can God be trusted when he says what he says in Scripture? And the Bible says there's no neutral. If you begin the debate by saying that the Bible's wrong, at least about neutrality, how are you going to end the debate by saying the Bible's right about everything? You can't abandon what you're trying to defend and expect to win the debate. This is a terrible way to start a debate, by conceding defeat, right? You can't defend biblical authority by abandoning biblical authority. I'm going to stand on the Word of God, and if he says, well, I, I don't believe in that, I'm going to say, well, that's, that's your problem. <laughs> I'm not going to be foolish just because you're rejecting God, God and his standard. People like to think they're very neutral, and they're going to ask you to be neutral. Two things to remember when people ask you to be neutral. One, they're not. Two, you shouldn't be. God hasn't called us to be neutral. He's called us to be Christians. We're supposed to stand on the authority of the Word. Right? To exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. We hold fast the faithful Word. And they'll say, well, that's circular reasoning. You can't do that. You can't stand on what you're trying to defend. Of course, the evolutionist is standing on evolution while he defends that. He doesn't seem to realize that little problem. But uh, it seems to me when it comes to an ultimate standard, you have to stand on what you're defending. You can't stand on something else because there's no greater standard, right? You can stand on what you're defending. In battle, if you're defending a hill, you can stand on the hill while you're defending the hill. That's a great place to be. You ever had something in your eye? You can look in a mirror and use your eye to examine your eye and correct your eye. There's nothing illogical about that. People don't really understand the nature of what, what constitutes an arbitrary fallacy of begging the question and what is consistent reasoning uh, within a particular worldview. All right, how do we get anywhere then? We can't, we can't meet on neutral ground because there's no such thing. You're either with God or against Him. We can't just throw evidence at each other. How do we get anywhere in this debate? By recognizing that biblical presuppositions and only biblical presuppositions make knowledge possible. People like to think they know things, and people do know lots of things, but that's only possible in a Christian worldview with biblical creation at its foundation. And that's something that the Bible itself teaches us tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You want to begin to know anything? It's got to start with God's presuppositions, the Christian worldview. You reject the Christian worldview, you reject Christian presuppositions, the Bible says you're a fool. You can't know anything because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, the Bible tells us in Colossians 2, 3. Not some, all. You want to know anything? You got to submit to God's presuppositions. There's an objection to this because people will say, well, wait a minute. I know some non-Christians and they do know some things. 
And that's true. But that's because they do know God. And they do, to some extent, act on his presuppositions, Christian presuppositions. Oh, yes, they do. I'll show you that in more detail later on. But my point is, the reason that unbelievers are able to know things is because they know in their heart of hearts the biblical God, and God has hardwired them with, some of, with, with Christian presuppositions. They know that, and they're able to do it. They just don't do it consistently. They deny the God who makes such presuppositions possible. And the Bible tells us that. It's not that people don't have enough knowledge of God, Romans 1, verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. God has shown it to them. God's revealed himself. That's not the problem. The problem is, verse 18, that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They take what they know to be true, they suppress it. The things of God are clearly seen, according to Scripture, so that there is no excuse. They're without excuse, without an apologetic is how that's literally uh, translated, by the way. Only the Bible can make sense of things necessary for knowledge. That's my argument. Simple argument, really. And I'm going to show you how, the, how that works out here. My proof of the Bible and biblical creation, the foundation of Scripture, if the Bible were not true, it would be impossible to prove that anything is true. Because the Bible alone makes sense of those things that are necessary for knowledge. There are certain things that have to already be true in order for you to have knowledge. For example, the reliability of your senses. You really couldn't learn much about the universe if your senses were not reliable. If you're just a brain in a jar being fed input and all this is just illusion, you can't know anything about the real universe. So that's a, what we call a precondition of intelligibility. It's something that has to be true in advance for you to know anything about anything. And I'm going to point out that only the Bible can make sense of those preconditions of intelligibility, like the reliability of my senses. God made my senses. Of course, they're going to be basically reliable. Maybe not perfectly reliable. We live in a cursed, fallen world now, but, but still, there's, a, there's a, a remnant of creation there. I want to hit just three briefly, and one in more detail. Laws of logic. We need laws of logic in order to have knowledge, don't we? You use laws of logic every day. You couldn't get out of bed without laws of logic. You know, I think I'm going to get out of bed and get a shower, but wait a minute, maybe I'm already in the shower. No, no, no. You know because you're here, you're not there. You're using, you're using logic. And we, we do that instinctively. It's not a problem. But laws of logic are rooted in the character and nature of God. Do you realize that? People don't think about that, but it's true. Why is it that two contradictory statements cannot both be true? Why is that? It's because God doesn't deny himself, the Bible says. God is self-consistent. And therefore, truth, which stems from God and his nature, will always be self-consistent. And so we have a law of non-contradiction. And we know it will always be that way because God does not change. We know that law applies everywhere because God is omnipresent. See, laws of logic are, are a reflection of the way God thinks and the way that we must think if we're going to learn truth, if we're going to have knowledge. So laws of logic make sense. We have a standard for correct reasoning, and that standard is God. But in an evolutionary universe, why would there be a standard of correct reasoning? Who decides what that is? Why would there be laws at all if there's no lawgiver, laws of logic in particular? Why would they have the properties that they do, like not changing with time and not changing with space in a random chance universe? That's what I want to know. Or uniformity in nature, not to be confused with uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is the belief that rates and conditions have always sort of been the same. We've seen evidence this evening that that's not the case. But uniformity is just the idea that there's an underlying orderliness in nature, what we might call laws, laws of nature, laws of science. Why would there be laws of nature in a chance universe? That's what I want to know. 
Why would they stay the same? Why would they apply at all times? Why are, why are they often described by nice, neat little equations like E equals MC squared? That's kind of convenient, isn't it? Almost as if it was designed to be understood by the human mind. Now, that makes sense in a Christian worldview because God upholds the universe by the word of his power. He does it in a consistent way that we can understand. But if the universe is just chance, there's no reason why science should even be possible because there's no basis for laws of nature, and that's what science seeks to uncover. Absolute morality. I'm going to spend most of the time on this one because I think it's the easiest to understand. Most you know, laws of logic, people haven't thought about that too much consciously or, you know, that why is science possible? Most people haven't given too much thought to that, but most people have thought about right and wrong. And some people have very staunch opinions on what's right and what's wrong. And so that's a great way to start in terms of uh, thinking through what's, what's possible. But you see, my point here is that right and wrong only makes sense in a Christian worldview. Right? Because we have a lawgiver who tells us what's right and wrong, and God will hold us accountable for our actions. So I have a very good reason to behave in a particular way. And, of course, God has revealed himself to us in, in the text of Scripture. That's why it has to be the Christian God. It can't just be any old God. It's God who's revealed himself, God who made us in his image, God who will hold us accountable for our actions, the Christian God. But, you see, if we're just rearranged pond scum, why would you have absolute morality? What one chemical does to another is morally irrelevant. Now, my point is not that evolutionists don't believe in these things. My point is they do, and yet they have no foundation for them on their professed worldview. So my atheist friend says, you don't have to be a Christian to use laws of logic. I believe in laws of logic. My counter would be, but you shouldn't on your worldview. You don't have any reason to believe in laws of logic on your worldview. You don't have, they don't have any justification. You can't account for them or their properties. So well, we all know that you can't have, that contradictions can't be true. Why on your worldview? I've got a reason because God doesn't deny himself. What's your explanation for that? He says, well, I've never seen a true contradiction. I say, hey, I've never seen Australia, but my friend assures me it's there, right? <laughs> See, just because you haven't seen something happen doesn't mean it's impossible. Only the Christian can say contradictions are always impossible because of the nature of God. He's relying upon that truth, but on his worldview, he can't account for it. He's, he's standing on this worldview, really, to account for it. Or science. Why would science be possible in a changing, random chance universe? And he says, oh, but there's right and wrong. And I say, yeah, but who decides on your worldview? How do you account for right and wrong? What does that even mean in your worldview? People pick worldviews a lot of times like they pick cars. What, what's your preference? Do you like blue? Do you like flame color? Take your pick. Do you like the biblical worldview or the secular one? But the fact is, when we examine worldviews carefully, we're going to find the biblical worldview makes sense. When we open it up, it can go somewhere. It can lead to knowledge. It's self-consistent. It works. The secular worldview, when we examine it carefully, can't possibly work. It cannot lead to knowledge. It's empty, empty philosophy. It's not a philosophy that leads to knowledge. And the way you expose that is you do what's called an internal critique. You evaluate the worldview on its own terms. For example, uh, relativism. You familiar with this idea? The idea that oh, everything's relative. There's no, there's no, there are no absolutes. All things are relative. And, of course, the question you want to ask a relativist is, are you absolutely certain? Right? The claim that there are no absolutes is an absolute claim. If it's true, it's false. Therefore, it's false. Really easy to refute relativism. Strict empiricism. A lot of evolutionists are strict empiricists. 
Surprising number of them, not all of them, but surprising number of them. That's their philosophy. They say all truth claims are proved by empirical observation. You want to know something? Go out and do an experiment. Look with your own eyes and so on. That's how we know what's true. Observation, that's the key. And of course, I believe some truth claims are answered that way, but not all of them. They would say, well, you can't take anything on authority. You can't trust the Bible because you can't see God and you can't touch him and so on, so you shouldn't believe in him. But it's interesting because this claim itself, all truth claims are proved by empirical observation, that sentence is itself a truth claim, isn't it? And so I'm going to ask, how do you know that the statement itself is, is true? Did you prove it by empirical observation? Did you observe all truth claims? By the way, you can't observe a truth claim. They're, they're conceptual. You can't see them. And, you, and even if you could, you certainly couldn't see all of them. So how does he know this is true? He says, well, I don't know it's true. Well, then he, there's no reason for me to believe it. And if he proves it some other way, then it's false, right? It refutes itself on its own terms. You can't observationally prove that all truth claims are proved by observation. It's impossible. And so what we'll find is secular worldviews, any worldview aside from Christianity, blows itself up on its own terms. All you have to do is push the unbeliever to be consistent with what he says he believes, and it will circle back around and blow itself up because only the fear of the Lord leads to knowledge. That's what it comes down to. So it may seem like we have an impasse because I'm standing on my biblical presuppositions. My secular colleague is standing on his secular presuppositions. It seems, it seems like we can't get anywhere. There's no neutral ground. Can't just throw evidence at each other. But what we find is that secular presuppositions can't support a worldview. They're inconsistent. They will not make possible science or logic or morality or any number of other things, reliability of senses and what have you. Of course, this is what the Bible teaches us, right? It's the, it's the words of Jesus that you have to build your house on for it to stand. Everything else, sinking sand. And when that sand dissolves away, the unbeliever has a problem. He cannot stand on his own view. So what's he going to do? He's going to stand on the Christian worldview. Oh, yeah. Unbelievers do stand on Christian presuppositions because they have to. They couldn't survive in this universe without embracing God's laws of logic, without recognizing his uniformity and therefore the laws of nature that we find, without recognizing some sort of objective morality. He's standing on Christian principles. He's, he's stealing from our worldview. He's stealing, he's stealing Christian presuppositions. Unbelievers are presuppositional kleptomaniacs. They, they compulsively steal from the Christian worldview. They can't help themselves. They have to because they've got to live in God's universe. He might deny being made in the image of God, but he can't escape being made in the image of God. That's what it comes down to. And so I'm going to point out that inconsistency and say, hey, you're, you're standing on Christian ground. He's going to say, no, no, I'm not. Laws of logic, that's not a Christian worldview. It's not a Christian presupposition, but really it is. He can't account for it on his own worldview. And all I'm going to do is point out the inconsistency. Okay, I'm not trying to save him. I can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. I'm just pointing out the inconsistency. I'm saying, look, fellow, you're standing on God's property. You either need to get saved or stop trespassing. That's what it comes down to. We pray you'll get saved, but that's between you and God. I'm just pointing out the inconsistency. You see, a debate over biblical creation is a lot like a debate over the existence of air. Can you imagine people arguing about whether or not air exists? What would the critic of air say? He's up there giving all these elaborate arguments. Oh, there's no such thing as air. All the while, breathing air and expecting that we can hear his argument as it's transmitted, as the sound is transmitted through the air. You see, the critic of air must use air to make a case against air. The fact that he's able to make an argument at all proves that he's wrong. And so it is with the critic of the Bible. A critic of the Bible must use biblical presuppositions in order to argue against the Bible. 
the fact that he's able to make his argument proves that his argument is wrong. Isn't that interesting? And of course, people might try to come back from that. Well, wait a minute. Ugh. I don't need the Bible to use things like logic and so on. Well, the, unless the Bible's true, you couldn't make sense of logic. It's kind of like the person who says, wait a minute, I don't, you're telling me air has to exist, I need air to breathe? That can't be, because I don't even believe in air, and I can breathe just fine, right? No, 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 you still need air to breathe. I'm not saying you have to profess a belief in air to breathe, but you do need air to breathe. I'm not saying you have to profess a belief in the Bible to have knowledge, but the Bible must be true in order for you to have knowledge. And so he's standing on the Christian worldview, using Christian presuppositions to argue against Christianity, and that is not going to work out well for him. If he's successful in arguing against Christianity, then he won't have the very presuppositions he needs to do science, logic, morality, and so on. Let's zoom in on just one of these, morality. It makes sense, right? If God created us, then he has the right to set the rules. Uh, but if God didn't create us, if you just rearrange pond scum, make, why not make up your own rules? And some people might say that's right, morality is relative, but they can't live that way. If I pull a gun on them and say, why shouldn't I pull the trigger? Go ahead, make my day. Right? If they say, well, yeah, I guess I, you know, if they say, well, no, you can't do that because there's this absolute moral code, well, they've made my day. They've proved my point. And if they say, well, yeah, I can't give you a reason, then I pull the trigger and I win the debate that way. Either way, I'm winning. there's no laws of logic in an evolutionary worldview anyway. There's no reason why you can't win a debate by simply shooting your opponent. I wouldn't do that because that's, I have a Christian worldview, but my point is he can't give me a good counterargument. How do you decide right from wrong? Apart from the biblical God, morality can only be relative, but people cannot live that way. They just can't. What are some possible responses? Oh, you don't need, you don't need the Bible to explain morality, he says. He says, good is what brings the most happiness to the most people. And my question would be, why? If people are just rearranged pond scum, why should I be concerned about their happiness? It's just a chemical reaction in their brain, right? I'm not really concerned about chemistry. I'm not really, you know, you go to a, a, you know, some baking soda, and you say, boy, you know, are you happy? I want to I make sure that you're happy. It's just chemistry, right? You wouldn't, it doesn't make any sense. And even here, he's borrowing on the Christian worldview, isn't he? He's saying, you don't need the Bible to account for Right and wrong, just do unto others what, what you would have them do unto you, right? I think I've heard that somewhere before. He's borrowing on the Christian worldview. Yeah, we should be concerned about the happiness of others because they're made in the image of God. Even this only makes sense in a Christian worldview. He can't account for it. Somebody told me, he said, well, the, the moral code's just, that's just the chemistry of the brain. And I said, then why should I follow it, right? If it's just chemistry, my stomach's got some chemistry going on, maybe I should use my indigestion to tell me right from wrong, right? It doesn't make any sense. Somebody says, well, laws of morality are, are conventions adopted for the benefit of society. We need laws in society. Otherwise, people would go around acting, you want to say what, like animals? Isn't that what we are in the evolutionary worldview? And who decides what benefits society? Hitler had some ideas about that, and I, I don't think we would argue that what he did was right. Not at all. So you see that he can't defend it apart from the scriptural standard. Consider an evolutionist who is outraged at seeing a violent murder on television. He says, I can't believe that man shot that little girl. That's terrible. Now, I'm glad he's upset, but my point is, on his worldview, it doesn't make sense. Why should he be angry? In his worldview, it's just one chemical accident getting rid of another chemical accident. What's the big deal? You rack the baking soda with the vinegar and it fizzes up. Do you get angry at it? You say, bad baking soda. You shouldn't have done that. Not if it's just chemistry. If we're just animals, what one animal does to another is morally irrelevant. 
The lion kills the antelope. You don't put the lion in jail. You better think about what you did. Animals do what animals do. So you see, standing on the Christian worldview, arguing against the Christian worldview, using Christian principles. Doesn't make sense. How can you use this effectively? The don't answer, answer strategy. Very effective. This is a great way to defend the Christian faith. It's, stem, it's right from Scripture, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Proverbs 26, 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. And the Bible's not just engaging in name-calling. It's not just saying, well, you're just a moron when it uses that term fool. It's using that term to describe someone who is dense, someone who is perhaps very intelligent, but who refuses to use his intellect in the way that God has intended and has been reduced to a silly worldview. The Bible here tells us that we should not embrace the presuppositions of the unbeliever or we'll be like him. Somebody comes to you and says, let's leave the Bible out of the discussion because I don't even believe in the Bible. So we can talk about origins, but stick to science. Should we agree to those terms? No, because if we do, we'll be like him, and we can't really get anywhere, right? We've just given up the Bible that we're trying to defend. We're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to buy into the presuppositions of the unbeliever, or we'll both be foolish. Then the next proverb says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. It may sound like a contradiction at first, but it's not because the sense is different. On the one hand, we shouldn't embrace the presuppositions of the unbeliever. On the other hand, we should show where they go so that he can't be wise in his own eyes. We sort of temporarily stand on his standard to show how silly it would be to do so. And so somebody says to you, there are no absolutes. You, you can argue with me, but you can't use any absolute statements because there are no absolutes. Now, I would not embrace that standard or I'd be like him. I'm going to say, no, I don't, I don't agree with your standard, but hypothetically, if there were no absolutes, you couldn't say there are no absolutes. You reflect his philosophy back to him so he can see how ridiculous it is. And then he can't be wise in his own eyes because now he says, oh yeah, I used, I used an absolute statement to say there are no absolute statements. That doesn't make any sense. Let me give you a silly example and then some more realistic ones. Somebody says, I don't believe in words. Prove to me that creation is true, but you can't use words because I don't believe in words. Right? And so you thought, wow, you know, boy, if you didn't believe in words, I guess I can't use words. I'll have to use charades or something. No, 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 no. First, the don't answer part. You're going to say, I don't accept your belief that words don't exist. I reject your standard. But then the, you do the answer part. But hypothetically, if words didn't exist, you couldn't argue anyway. The fact that you're able to make your case demonstrates that it is wrong. You just use words to tell me you don't believe in words. You see, you reflect this philosophy back to him so you can see the absurdity of it. Powerful stuff. What's he going to say now? If he says nothing, then my point stands unrefuted. If he says anything, he proves my point, that words exist. That's a great way to argue. That's why God put it in Scripture for our, for our uh, benefit. Never put on the suit. Never embrace the presuppositions of the unbeliever, but do reflect them back to him so that he can see the absurdity of it. Show how they self-destruct. A few realistic examples here. Somebody says, I believe in naturalism. Nature's all that there is. There's no miracles. Show me logically how the earth could be 6,000 years old. Rather than immediately going to things like, you know, well, C14 and stuff like that, I think that's all good evidence. You could mention some of those, but ultimately you should get to the don't answer, answer strategy. You say, first of all, I don't accept your belief in naturalism. I reject your standard. I don't embrace naturalism. I do accept the supernatural realm. But hypothetically, if naturalism were true, It'd be impossible to prove anything since you can't have laws of logic. Laws of logic. See, naturalist says everything that exists is made up of atoms. But laws of logic are not made up of atoms. They can't exist in a naturalistic worldview. 
He's trying to use something that can't exist in his own worldview to defend his worldview. It's not going to work. Somebody says, you can't take the Bible seriously. It's full of contradictions. Heard people say that? Rather than getting stuck in the detail, it may be okay to answer a few of those. That's fine. But ultimately, you should come back and say, first of all, I don't accept your claim that the Bible has contradictions. I take it as the infallible Word of God. It's not going to have any errors in it, certainly not contradictions. But here's a question people don't think to ask. Hypothetically, why would that be wrong? Hmm. Oh, everybody knows contradictions are wrong. No, 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 sir. I, as a Christian, know that contradictions are wrong because they're contrary to the nature of God. How do you know that contradictions are always wrong? And they don't, they don't know how to answer that. Their head will explode when you ask them that one. They say, well, I've never seen a true contradiction. Hey, I've never seen Australia. I've never seen, oh, there's lots of stuff I've never seen. That doesn't mean it's impossible. Not at all. How about this one? It's wrong to teach creation in schools while you're lying to children. Don't answer. Answer. First of all, I don't accept your claim that teaching creation is lying. Creation's true. I got some books I'd be happy to show you on that topic. Science lines up with it. Science confirms it. But then the answer part. But hypothetically, why would it be wrong to lie to children in your worldview? They're just chemical accidents, right? Why would you worry about lying to chemical accidents, particularly if it benefits my survival value? Why would that be wrong? Well, everybody knows it's wrong. I know it's wrong as a Christian. God tells me not to lie. It's contrary to his nature. How do you account for that fact? I'm glad you believe that lying's wrong, but my point is, on, on your evolutionary worldview, you can't account for that fact. You're stealing from my worldview. Get your own worldview. <laughs> Somebody says, the Christian God's not good. He slaughters innocent children. Look at that Old Testament God going back there, wiping out all those people. Innocent children. See, you're going to zoom in on a couple words here. Good. Innocent. This person is trying to argue from a standpoint of absolute morality, which you cannot have apart from the Christian worldview. Say, first of all, I don't accept your standard that God is not good. You've got some standard I don't understand, but for, for, to say that God isn't good is like saying Dr. Lyle isn't very Dr. Lyle-ish. God is as good as he can be because he's the definition of what's good. God is good in the standard of goodness. But hypothetically, apart from God, how can you determine what is good and who are innocent? Those words you just used make no sense on your worldview. That's a great way to defend the faith. Very powerful. And if you master this, boy, and it doesn't take long to master this method, folks. If it's new to you, if you haven't heard, if you haven't thought about things this way before, it might seem difficult, but it doesn't. I've been able to teach this stuff to teenagers in a week, and they've got it by the end of the week. They can argue against anybody because they're arguing from Scripture. And that's the way to do it. Stand on God's Word and point out, that the unbeliever has to stand on God's word too in order to make sense of anything. And if you understand that, you can agree with the Apostle Paul and say, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Indeed, he has. 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. See how everything, how all truth depends on him. Then you'll be ready always to give a defense, to give an answer to everyone who asks a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear, with gentleness and respect. And again, this may not persuade people to become a Christian, but that's not our job. That's the Holy Spirit's prerogative. As Dr. Bonson liked to put it, it's not our job to open people's hearts. That's up to the Holy Spirit. It's our job to close their mouths. And that's what this method does, and it does it very effectively. And as you get better and better at this, and it doesn't take long to get good at this, not long at all, as you, as you get better at it, you can slice and dice your opponents. It's all the more important to remember with meekness and fear, with gentleness and respect, because the critics are also made in the image of God, even if they deny it. And we should remember that we've all been the fool at one point, 
It was only because of God's grace that we're not today. We need to stand on God's word from the beginning. That's the key to defending the Christian faith. Stand on God's word. Point out the unbeliever has to stand on God's word too in order to make sense of anything. Very powerful apologetic method. I've got the details uh, outlined in my book, The Ultimate Proof of Creation. It goes into more detail on these things and, and elaborates, and there's, there's uh, pictures and so on that really help illustrate these, these truths. Uh, very powerful, very powerful. And it doesn't take long. Again, you can, you can learn it in a week, really. It, it, of course, it takes a lifetime to master it, but that's, that's, why, um, that's why I like continuing to think about these sorts of things. J this was the approach that Jesus used in his earthly ministry. That's why he was able to take any argument and turn it around on its head. And the critics, they, they couldn't argue with him. Jesus was not the sort of person you wanted to debate against. Check us out on the web, icr.org, and our student ministry, Your Origins Matter. So thank you very much, and I'll be outside in just a few minutes.